I'm Phil Nabashi Treitler, and this is Let's Give This Some Thought. It's a podcast about regular people coming together in communities of critical thought. In season one, undergraduate students taking my course on critical race and racism share their thoughts. Over the past several weeks, we and our peers in Professor Treitler's class have explored the historical trajectory and current dynamics of race in society. As our time in this course comes to a close, we reflect on our material and continue the conversation in the form of this podcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the historical origins of anti-Blackness and the racial hierarchy, and we'll also be exploring its role in society today through cultural appropriation. I'm Sarah, and I'm a first year at UCSB. I'm Leah, and I'm also a first year. And I'm Bo, and I'm also a first year. And this is Let's Give This Some Thought. Before we dive into the main topic of our podcast, which is cultural appropriation, it's important to understand and acknowledge the origins of race and how the racial hierarchy in the U.S. came to be. The idea of race is a made-up social concept that has resulted in serious consequences over the past few centuries. As it's discussed in Stephen Jay Gould's article, The Geometer of Race, this is in large part due to a man named Johann Frederick Blumenbach, who created a social hierarchy that placed humans into five racial categories, Caucasian, Mongolian, Ethiopian, American, and Malay. Blumenbach established a hierarchy based on worth that put Caucasians at the top, and Gold explains his reasoning for doing so. Blumenbach determined his rankings based on physical beauty, unlike his teacher Linnaeus, who developed a four-race system based on geography. So, because of Blumenbach, race went from something based on objective observation to something based on subjective observation. Right, and from this new subjective reasoning, Blumenbach distinguished that Caucasians were the most physically beautiful and also the most primal. And the quote, scientific way he came to this conclusion was based on the observations from one skull of a Caucasian female. He didn't look any further to find evidence of this. He didn't look at the skulls of people from any other geographic location but instead used the findings from this single skull to back up his assertion. The findings being that the skull was white, and he concluded since white people's skulls are white, people's skin color must match the color of their skull. Again, not looking any further into that. And he also concluded that since it's easy for white to darken, or as Blumenbach says it, degenerate into darker colors and almost impossible for darker skinned people to lighten, White must be the primal color of man. And this conclusion ultimately is the reason for white people's top position in the first racial hierarchy, and it's stuck with us even today. And knowing this now really goes to show that the creation of race wasn't really scientific, but social, right? Because there was no evidence for what he claimed about darker-skinned people, and more importantly, it was Blumenbach's subjective observation. An observation of a white man, someone who had something to gain from the hierarchy that he ended up creating. And a hierarchy that, you know, the United States was built upon. Yeah, so like Sarah was saying, like moving into 19th, 20th century United States, 
this racial hierarchy um, was set in. And it was originally based on so-called data, but it was actually completely unscientific. And so now you have the creation of something new and maybe less externally um, visible or externally identifiable, and it was ethnicity. And Professor Treitler's book, The Ethnic Project, outlines how the social hierarchy in America is maintained by upholding the low statuses of certain ethnicities. Yeah, so race is assigned to others as it heavily focuses on physical characteristics, while ethnicity is more of a claimed phenomenon as it, you know, relates to cultural expressions and shared identities. Also, race revolves around a strict hierarchy of power, while ethnicity doesn't. The racial paradigm that exists in the U.S. places whites at the top and non-whites at the bottom. So whenever a new ethnic group arrives in the U.S., they're considered to be the bottom of the barrel, as they don't fit into the racial hierarchy. Some ethnic groups, however, have been successful at combating this by performing something known as racial uplift, in which an ethnic group proves to the dominant population, white people, that they are better than those at the bottom of the racial hierarchy, black people, and as a result are rewarded with a better placing in the hierarchy. Though many ethnic groups have tried, only some have been effective at distancing themselves from the blacks they were all once compared to. And some examples are the Irish, the Chinese, the Italians, and the Jewish as they all had close relationships with Blacks until they all accomplished racial uplift by promoting and supporting anti-Black racism. So thinking about these historical contexts um, with the establishment of anti-Blackness as the root of racism and racial hierarchies, um, there are a lot of dynamics at play that are super common in modern society um, that reinforce this racial hierarchy that Blumenbach laid out and that our professor discussed in her book. And one of these is cultural appropriation, which is defined as taking intellectual property, traditional knowledge, cultural expressions, or artifacts from someone else's culture. And the definition goes on um, to kind of specify that um, cultural appropriation is the most harmful when you're taking something from a community that is underserved or historically oppressed. So if you're using an object or wearing something or using knowledge that is traditionally from someone's culture that is marginalized in society, then that is considered cultural appropriation. So this class is about race and racism, but more specifically, we've been looking at this right in terms of the black perspective. And we've seen, especially in recent years, that, you know, black culture has been utilized to profit those in other ethnic groups. Bo is going to talk about it a little bit more specifically later. But again, it's what Leo is saying, right? It's fairly often that we see a person, typically a white person, use black culture for their own financial or social gain. And they're able to do so while also maintaining their white privilege and power. And I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that in terms of the racial hierarchy, people that lie higher up on this pyramid have been able to kind of pick and choose aspects of cultures that aren't their own and benefit from both that culture as well as maintain their privilege as a white person. That being said, there are a lot of different forms of cultural appropriation. Yeah, so as Sarah just said, there are many examples of cultural appropriation, especially when it comes to Black culture. 
um, that could be examined. So all of these instances of cultural appropriation are interesting considering how white people and other ethnic groups higher up on the racial hierarchy who once and you know arguably still belittled and discriminated against African-Americans for their culture and are now benefiting themselves and profiting off that same culture they used to try avoiding. Um, but now white people style their hair this way because they want to and are often rewarded for it, whereas black people might be discriminated against for it and their white privilege in being able to do so disregards the history and significance associated with such hairstyles that is so understood by the black community. So tone deaf acts like this, that lack understanding by white people can be found across multiple industries, including the fashion industry, clothing companies like Gucci, Chanel, and others are guilty of selling products that ignore, you know, historical context and cultural sensitivities. Um, but a good and, you know, more recent example of this is the highly criticized 2012 Victoria's Secret fashion show where supermodel Carly Kloss went down the runway in turquoise jewelry and a headdress. So this is problematic as sacred artifacts are not meant to be accessorized. And though this example doesn't necessarily pertain to, you know, Black culture, it does show how this problem of cultural appropriation impacts multiple minority groups and white people are often the culprits. Yeah, so um, one example of um, cultural appropriation that's kind of developed over time in pop culture um, is the career of Ariana Grande, who is a singer and um, she's just been in the industry for a while. So she is white um, and she has Italian American heritage, yet over time she's built this image for herself that appropriates black culture from her music style to the way she speaks and the way she presents herself. And a lot of people have talked about this on the internet, but she continues to maintain um, and build this power in the industry. And this brings up a concept called blackfishing, um, which is a term that refers to people who basically pretend to be black by using makeup, surgery, and like other products, which that's just one facet of, of where this has kind of taken her, but it's a clear example of how she has made this image for herself and it's been successful in society for kind of putting her music on the map. Whereas black people who express themselves in a way that is culturally relevant to them are not profiting off of it in a lot of instances and are told that they're unprofessional, are told that they need to conform basically to white society, whereas people like Ariana Grande, and it's not specific to her at all, but she's just an example of um, someone who is able to kind of bounce back and forth between what society accepts and what um, has kind of made her like interesting and cool in the music industry. Right, you have to think about it, right? She's a She belongs to an ethnic group. Um, that has achieved whiteness in America. As an Italian-American, she's achieved whiteness. And um, today, in, in recent years, right, we consider people of this ethnicity 
um, as white, right? And that puts them at the top of Blumenbach's racial hierarchy. And it's this position on that hierarchy that allows her to do so, right? She's been cherry picking from the lower levels, benefiting from black culture um, with elements of R&B in her music, her hood themes in her videos, and like Leah was saying, black fishing or her hair. And she makes tens of millions a year from this and never really attributes her style to the black community. Yeah, so as we've kind of been discussing, um, the music industry has quite the history of doing wrong by its Black artists. Um, Like, it's so widely believed that white musicians, you know, created rock and roll in the 1950s, but the musical style was actually, you know, borrowed from Black musicians like Chuck Berry, who rarely or, you know, unfortunately never received credit um, I mean, even the famous Elvis Presley song, um, Hound Dog, was stolen from a Black female blues singer named Big Mama Thornton. And in modern times, as we've been discussing with Ariana Grande, white rappers like Eminem, Iggy Azalea, and Macklemore gain more success from the same type of music that Black rappers create by adopting something that was invented and developed in another culture in the same way that Ariana Grande does. Um, so as we've been discussing... Um, companies and industries obviously recognize that there's money to be made from Black urban culture. And this is talked about in Professor Treitler's The Ethnic Project when she writes, as deficient as Black urban culture is supposed to be, a lot of money is to be made from it. And our professor name drops Naomi Klein, a Canadian author. So as Naomi Klein puts it, Um, The truth is that the gotta be cool rhetoric of the global brands is more often than not an indirect way of saying gotta be black. So in other words, cool hunting simply means black culture hunting and companies that we all know and shop at use this model of business. As Professor Treitler discusses in the Ethnic Project, even the popular brand Nike is guilty of this when she writes, so focused is Nike on borrowing style, attitude and imagery from black urban youth that the company has created its own word for the practice, broing. Unfortunately, as Professor Treitler writes in The Ethnic Project, others can borrow or steal to make wealth that they pocket without sharing any of it with the style and culture's creators. For me, companies, brands, and individuals that profit off the coolness of Black culture while turning a blind eye to the structural injustice and economic inequality faced by Black Americans is, you know, extremely problematic. So clearly, cultural appropriation is a problem, but we all live in a multicultural society, especially in the U.S., and cultures are constantly changing due to how fluid they are. So what's the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation? Well, cultural appropriation occurs when, as we you know, previously stated, one adopts the unique aspects of a distinct culture in an attempt to make it their own and are often rewarded for these acts as seen in the examples that we discussed. Um, Whereas cultural appreciation occurs when one recognizes, respects and enjoys a distinct culture. Um, And a good example of cultural appreciation would be learning martial arts from an instructor who has an understanding of the practice from a cultural perspective. Um, So cultural appreciation involves respect and understanding, while cultural appropriation does not. So how can cultural appropriation be avoided? Um, To begin with, make an effort to engage with cultures on more than just an aesthetic level. Acknowledge, appreciate, and understand the culture from which you are drawing inspiration from. 
be informed and educated, not insensitive. It's always good to do research. And secondly, cultural appropriation is a lot like plagiarism. So, you know, give credit where credit is due. For example, the Brazilian sportswear brand known as Osclin collaborated with the Ashanika tribe for its spring 2016 collection, and the tribe received some of the profit that was made. Also, the collection helped raise awareness about the tribe's struggle with protecting their lands from logging and other forms of environmental you know, problems. Um, working together in fair and transparent ways allows opportunity for real progress in how different cultures interact and respect each other. Lastly, and most importantly, ask yourself questions if you're unsure if something could be considered an act of cultural appropriation. Are you insulting someone's culture or being dis disrespectful in any way? Are you ignoring the cultural significance of something just to follow a trend? Are you crediting the source or inspiration of what you're doing? How would people from the culture you were borrowing from feel about what you're doing? Um, questions like these increases your levels of respect and sensitivity for other cultures. And if you do engage in an act that's deemed inappropriate, disrespectful, or insensitive, that's okay as long as you accept your mistake and devote yourself to changing your ways. We want to emphasize that we are not experts on these topics and that this discussion was based on the work of experts and the sources that we discussed. Ultimately, the origins of race and the ethnic hierarchy manifest in modern social problems like cultural appropriation and provide a structure for their harm on people. Right. And, you know, we can call out cultural appropriation and pop culture and in the media, you know, um, we can call out Ariana Grande, but it's really um, the big name brands that Bo was talking about and the people who participate and profit off cultural appropriation who will still maintain the power. And I feel like this is why it's essential to evaluate the presence of anti-blackness in everyday life. And it's one step that, you know, we can take towards dismantling white supremacy and I mean these are all things that I wouldn't have known if I had not taken this class I mean I think or I guess I hope that we all learned growing up that racism is bad right we know about slaves and the civil war and segregation and that's basically all I was taught on racism until I took this class it's definitely opened my eyes to the point where I understand the importance of not just being not racist, but being anti-racist and the importance of educating myself on these topics, too, because it's easy to just, you know, go with what you were taught and what others tell you. But knowing this information for yourself and knowing the history has really changed how I view racism at all its levels. Yeah. And as Sarah was saying, um, I think it's important to go deeper than the superficial and sometimes incorrect perspective on race that schools in the U.S. tend to project on students. Um, and I think this also applies to integrating race study into all fields of study. So while it's super valuable, um, and it definitely was valuable for me to look at race and its history specifically in a specific course, I think being able to learn about these topics um, throughout different fields like technology and science and looking at it through that scope would be really valuable for students pursuing those 
fields um, and being able to like bring that knowledge with them into the future. Yeah, so like Sarah and Leah have been discussing, I also feel like I was sort of gypped when it comes to like my, my K through 12 education. Um, but this course, however, taught me that just because I'm not racist doesn't mean that I don't actively participate in or benefit from a system of racism. And no matter how well-intentioned white people are, we're all part of the problem. And this course has really opened my eyes. Um, for real systemic change to occur, white people, including myself, have to really reflect on themselves and be open to new ways of learning and thinking. So with this podcast, we hope we've encouraged our listeners to educate and keep educating themselves and others on issues about race and racism, as they likely won't learn about it anywhere else, especially not in the K through 12 curriculum, unless they are explicitly exposed to it. Yeah, and if you're interested, please feel free to explore the sources we discussed today. Um, the Ethnic Project by Belnabashi Treitler and The Geometer of Race by Stephen Golds. And we hope that you tune in to the rest of the season of Let's Give This Some Thought. You've been listening to Let's Give This Some Thought, a podcast made by and for critical thinkers. Original art, Meditations on Black Womanhood by Vilnabashi Treitler. Original music, Brooklyn Pound by Tailored Music. And I'm your host, Vilnabashi Treitler. Leave us a review on your favorite platform, send us a message, or write out a comment. Thanks for listening. Thank you.